US-China tensions, reflections on the ASPE conference, and gender and terrorism. Welcome to Policy, Guns and Money, the ASPE podcast. I'm your host, Olivia Nelson, and this week, Brendan Nicholson and Anastasia Capetis offer some key takeaways from the conference series so far. Yes, look, and I think um, Howard's comments um, in the grab that, that we just heard were really consistent with his position when he was PM. Leanne Close speaks to Sophia Patel about her research on counterterrorism and gender, which was featured in this year's Counterterrorism Yearbook. A key finding um, was that there is no single profile of women who travelled to ISIS. But first, Kelsey Munro speaks to Charles Adele, Senior Fellow and Visiting Scholar at Sydney University's United States Studies Centre. They discuss US policy approaches towards China and how the strong rhetoric coming out of Washington distracts from US domestic political failings. Charles Adele, absolute pleasure to be speaking with you again on the podcast. How are you? I'm terrific. Thanks very much for having me on, Kelsey. Although, uh, you know, my apologies because I know it's gotten very cold down there, or at least Australian <laughs> cold of late. Australian cold, Canberra cold. I've never, never had to live through a Canberra winter before. <laughs> um, so, look, we were we're going to talk a bit about, I guess, the US and Australia's sort of and China triangle relationship. The US-China relationship has been obviously been strained for a while, but certainly these recent weeks. Pompeo's speech, the consulate closures, um, sanctions announced, comments on Hong Kong, um, the US approach does seem to be hardening. And I think there are obviously very many real causes of divergence and competition and rivalry, but it's hard not to see a sort of ugly nationalism and political opportunism possibly driven by electioneering typified in the administration's approach. I'm thinking of Pompeo's speech on communist China and the free world, for example. So I'm really interested. What what do you make of the newish U.S. approach, if we can call it that? Yeah. Um, well, I, I think both of the uh, propositions that you laid out are true at the same time. And let me kind of pull those apart. So uh, on the one hand, I think there are some real differences. Uh, they are pronounced and they're becoming even more so. And there's an element of politics if that is a large, if not the overwhelming uh, thrust of what you're seeing of a changing U.S. set of policies coming out from the administration. So let's talk about both of those, I think. Uh, So on the first one, you know, I I think it's quite clear that the U.S. and China offer completely different models of social development and governance, uh, open and closed systems. Uh, And at their core, and this is what you're hearing in some of those speeches that you alluded to, you talked about Pompeo's, but Pompeo's is only one of four that the administration coordinated to roll out at the same time, right? The attorney general had one, uh, the head of the FBI uh, had one as well, and the national security advisor had one as well. These are a coordinated set of speeches in line with the policies that have been rolled out. And it's uh, an attempt to make the argument uh, to the American people, uh, whether or not that argument is hitting, that these are increasingly and diametrically opposed systems. Uh, there's really no wiggle room in those speeches, uh, as we've heard. Uh, it's a little different on what the White House put out in uh, China's strategy. That's a little bit more balanced. But in the speeches that we've heard, it is making the argument that these are fundamentally two incompatible systems. And I would say that Pompeo's speech itself uh, stopped just short of calling for regime change uh, in China, uh, mm. which is, as they say, rather sporty language. Uh, so... 
the series of policy actions, uh, you know, the most visible, the most dramatic uh, being the U.S. Uh, closure of the Chinese consulate in Houston, Texas, followed by the Chinese closure of the U.S. consulate in Chengdu. That's only one of several, as you noted, policy actions that have happened. And we could, you know, kind of get into the ins and outs on that, everything from restricting uh, some Chinese students uh, coming over to the U.S. Uh, to study, to increasing Justice Department indictments on Chinese cyber actors, to restrictions on Huawei and blacklisting of other uh, Chinese companies, to more vocal criticism of China's COVID uh, response, to the crackdown or the sanctions rather that are now being uh, targeted at those cracking down on Hong Kong and on the ongoing genocide in Xinjiang. So these need to be viewed all together. And I think it's because the systems in so many ways are just diametrically opposed. Uh, break, break. That's one point kind of of the uh, collision of the systems. Uh, but the ramping up, I would say, of why we're seeing this now is hard uh, to understand without uh, not only the election, but also the utter failure of the Trump administration to handle the coronavirus pandemic in America. Uh, because while the Trump administration has been uh, tough, hard, uh, leaning forward into China competition for a long time now, uh, Trump himself has been all over the place. Uh, if we believe uh, the revelations in John Bolton's book, we know, amongst other things, that he not only did not push back against, but seemed to green light uh, Xi Jinping's moves in Hong Kong and told him he was doing the absolute right thing by building concentration camps in Xinjiang. Pretty startling things. Not to mention, uh, amongst other things, that uh, restrictions on ZTE or Huawei were seen not as threats to information systems, but rather political personal concessions that he could make to Xi Jinping, transactionalism. Uh, and so it's hard to, I think, avoid the point that this is seen the ramping up at this moment is seen as an attempt to distract from the awful response to coronavirus and pin the tail on the donkey, i.e. China, uh, that only Trump can be tough on this. Uh, so again, the, you can see in the American political discourse that two things are happening at once. Uh, Trump is claiming, uh, rightfully so, that he has presided over the largest shift in American relations uh, towards China over the past four decades. That's true. But whether or not he has been hard on China, tough on China, when uh, he has consistently wobbled, seemed to prioritize getting election uh, wins, in fact, has asked China to intervene in the U.S. political election to give him wins, that's not speculation on John Bolton. He said that in the Rose Garden uh, of the White House. Uh, those are two different things, I think, that we have to uh, kind of put in our minds as we analyze where U.S.-China policy has gone over the recent weeks. Was there anything sensible in that rather extraordinary Pompeo speech? I mean, he did, for example, bring that to Australia's new um, kind of defence posture and, and the recent defence strategic update. Um, did you see any signs of interest in that in that Australian document? Yeah. Uh, again, this is challenging. I'm going to try not to talk for quite so long, but you've asked me like two really interesting and complicated <laughs> questions, Kelsey. Uh, so uh, yeah, one, uh, you know, was there anything sensible in Pompeo's speech? Yes, I think there was a lot that was uh, sensible in it, although the overheated rhetoric, uh, the coming uh, uh, right up to the brink of calling for regime change, and then the bullying 
of U.S. allies to join a democratic alliance. I'm not talking about Australia here, but really mm-hmm. a calling out of Germany, uh, you could see. Uh, we, we have specific NATO allies who are not doing this because they want to make a mm-hmm. buck. Um, it, you know, it is rather problematic if you are then looking to enlist allies on your side. Uh, you know, I think that there's a larger problem that we can't separate from American domestic mm-hmm. politics at this time and where the Trump administration has gone. Uh, because if the call is to forge an alliance of democracies that needs to fortify, defend, strengthen uh, the free world, it is problematic at best to have the Trump administration, which has moved against uh, free democratic uh, principles, instincts, and institutions within the U.S. at the same time it is calling for others to come on side. Uh, again, uh, that's there are two different things that are happening here. But as you ask about the direction that an alliance could go, this makes eminent sense. The question is whether or not the Trump administration can actually pull it off and entice others to join it on its own terms. And that's, I think, where the uh, Osman conversation comes into play, because I thought it was a really productive Osman. Uh, I thought it was the most meaty set of deliverables and rollouts since at least 2012, when there was the announcement mm-hmm. of U.S. Marine Detachment, rotational detachment up in Darwin. There are a ton of things in there. Uh, but even if you looked at the rollout and deliverables and then you watched the speeches, uh, I think what's quite clear uh, in my analysis is that uh, Australia sees great value in joining forces to defend free and democratic principles and keep the Indo-Pacific free and open, uh, it sees very little value in making this a purely adversarial uh, set of confrontational policies with China. Uh, In fact, it's kind of modeled itself on that is the way to move forward here. And I think uh, and hope that the United States uh, takes note on what Australia is doing, because I think not only the Osman deliverables, but the defense strategic update coupled with Prime Minister Morrison's speech at the beginning of July really actually do point a in a slightly different direction than we've seen for what the alliance might look like and what U.S. alliances in Asia might look like. But it's unclear if Australia will move fast enough on uh, kind of realizing some of the things that it has set up as goals for itself. And if the United States is willing to work with Australia, but in a broad, broader lesson, work with other allies uh, in a similar set of um, circumstances. You said it might look a bit different. Do you mean sort of more, more, more burden sharing, for example? Like there was the commitment from Australia to invest more in long-range missiles, for example, sort of. Is that part of what you're talking about there? Absolutely. Uh, but that I don't think that's the whole of it. So part of this is a more equitable set of burden sharing obligations, and that's simply because the balance of power has shifted. Uh, But that also means, I think, a change in the type of capabilities that Australia has said that it wants and how quickly it wants them. Uh, The geographic orientation uh, and the regional commitment uh, or set of commitments that Australians taken on for itself. In some ways, uh, I would say um, and read what um, the Defense Strategic Update rolled out as not only this reorientation, but a hardening of Australia's position um, and a greater ability to push further off and deter 
further Chinese probes and working more closely with its regional uh, partners. And it strikes me that if you think about this uh, geographically uh, across the entire Indo-Pacific, uh, if this were a model that other states were to take up, we could think about Japan, uh, we can think about South Korea, uh, we could think about India, we could think about Vietnam or the Philippines. I mean, this conversation can go in lots of different directions. That's a slightly different model of what alliances and partnerships look like. And it become, begins to look much more capable, uh, much more investment into the region and into strike capabilities. The open question, though, is how coordinated those individual efforts get to be for a regional set of postures and policies. And a lot of that, like many, many things, depends on that election in November. <laughs> That's fascinating, Charles. Thanks very much for joining us this morning and hopefully we can um, take up this conversation again. Well, thanks very much for having me on, Kelsey. There's a ton of developments coming out right now in Australia, in the US, uh, from China. So uh, there is no shortage of things to talk about. Next, Brendan Nicholson speaks to the newest member of the strategist team, Anastasia Kapetis. They offer their thoughts on the ASPE conference so far and some of the key takeaways. I'm Brendan Nicholson. Anastasia, welcome to ESPE and The Strategist. How are you finding it so far? Thanks for your very kind welcome, Brendan. It's been great so far, so thank you. We're going to hear a grab from John Howard and Kim Beasley as part of the ongoing online conference. Here it goes now. We're still going to look at the situation where our best export destination is China and how tremendously important it is to maintain that consistent with all of the decisions and I, I, I applaud the recent defence statement by the Prime Minister, uh, I applaud the broadly bipartisan approach which is being taken to you know, a bit of resistance and pushback in relation to Chinese activity in our area but we've got to just remember the longer term national interests of this country and we were able to um, maintain a good relationship with China through a lot of difficult things and we've got to try and find a way of doing that now. So Anastasia, what were your impressions of Howard and Beasley? Well, I guess one of the things I was going to say, Brendan, um, it made me relatively nostalgic again to see these these two uh, greats of Australia's political past um, chatting together in a, in a collegial and friendly way. Did you feel nostalgic? I, look, I most certainly did. It, it, they brought uh, collegiality was... Uh, word you use, but um, it was a, an echo of a time past when there was a sort of graciousness in politics, like these two were fierce opponents of each other at the time, but there was a sort of tolerance for other people's ideas. Um, now, they both uh, reached agreement on a, in a number of ways on Australia's approach to China now, but there were also some significant differences. Yes, look, and I think um, Howard's comments um, in the grab that, that we just heard are really consistent with his position when he was PM. So uh, for Howard, a, a pragmatic relationship with China was key. He didn't have the kind of enthusiasm probably for Asia that perhaps his previous Labor counterparts had had before. Labor had talked previous to John Howard's um, tenure a lot about finding our security in Asia, finding our future in Asia. John Howard sort of stripped that back and kind of said, we're finding our economic future um, in Asia and particularly in China. So he had a very pragmatic approach, which I think was reflected in his comments. 
But I think what is interesting here is he, he said to this current government, while he applauds some pushback, he's kind of saying to Scott Morrison, don't push back too hard. Kim Beasley's approach was a little different. Kim Beasley did feel that a line had been drawn. That line would be in terms of China's behaviour towards Taiwan. He clearly had greater concern that we might, in fact, wind up in a, in a conflict, which uh, Howard felt was less likely. Well, let's hear from Kim Beasley now. I think that the, the core problem here that might lead to a hot war is Taiwan. Uh, I don't think at the end of the day anything in the South China Seas is likely to do that. I think the Chinese would step back from anything there. And already there is a line drawn on Taiwan. The United States drew a line on Taiwan a long time ago. And that was uh, a, uh, a line which said that while it was recognised that Taiwan was part of China, any attempt to resolve that issue by force would be dealt with. What's interesting here about what Kim's saying is that he is agreeing with another panellist who, who was in the ASPE conference series, Elizabeth Economy, um, the very well-respected uh, China analyst um, from the States. For her, also, Taiwan is, uh, is, is the flashpoint. She agrees with Kim that the South China Sea is much less likely to become uh, a point of contention, that the stakes for Taiwan are much higher. Taiwan is central to Xi's plan for restoring the territorial integrity of China, much more so than the South China Sea. Do you think that Elizabeth Economy is optimistic or, or pessimistic about the future and whether we can straighten the relationship out? She didn't really comment on what the future of Taiwan might be. Of course, Taiwan's just had an election which resoundingly uh, brought back to power a president who had a, a very pro-Taiwanese independent identity platform. So I think what has happened in Hong Kong has also increased worries in places like Washington about China's possible future resolve in terms of Taiwan. She also touched on the pandemic, and we have a grab on that. Has he emerged from this, though? Because he can say, look, we defeated this. He describes this as a people's war, and we won this war, and the Communist Party won this war. Has he emerged from it, in fact, stronger, though? Well, I would say this. I think the story of COVID-19, the pandemic, is not over yet, right? We, we don't have the bookends. We don't have either uh, understanding of the origins of the virus, right, which is something that Australia has been out front of, you know, calling for investigation, and we don't have a vaccine. So that means that the pandemic continues to evolve and the story of the pandemic continues to evolve. And even in China, we still have outbreaks happening uh, even though they have taken very strong measures uh, to control the pandemic. I think, you know, what the pandemic did was to illuminate the very nature of Chinese governance, its strengths, its weaknesses, you know, its mobilization strengths, right? Its ability to quarantine, you know, tens of millions of people at once, its ability to, you know, produce massive amounts of PPE in a very short time uh, to create those quarantine centers. You know, that's a strength of the mm -hmm. Chinese Communist Party. Uh, but it also revealed the weakness, right? The very fact that it is repressive and lacks transparency is what allowed the virus to spread in the beginning, right? To spread within China and then, you know, ultimately to spread outside of China as well. Um, you know, the, the fact that they had a diplomatic moment where they could extend themselves and, and you know, after they had beaten down the worst of it uh, to, to go out and provide uh, the PPE for the rest of the world, and then they totally undermined it themselves with their wolf warrior diplomacy 
demanding gratitude, uh, you know, and saying, yes, if you're going to ask for, you know, an investigation, actually, we're going to, you know, ban your beef and, you know, put tariffs on your barley. Anastasia, she is uh, coming for some very strong criticism from uh, President Trump. Uh, Australia has uh, demanded an inquiry to find out what went wrong in terms of the handling, the sources, the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic and the, um, the handling of it. How do you feel this will overall impact on Xi domestically? I think one of the, the first things to say, it's very diffi- difficult for outsiders to know what exactly what happens domestically in terms of public opinion in the Chinese black box. So just to state at the, that at the outset, Economy said that this story is not over yet. It's got a long time to run. If the pandemic is with us for essentially another two years, we're just at the beginning of this story and we're at the beginning of the battle of narratives. So there's a couple of contradictory things here um, which um, Economy kind of touched on. One is that, as many have said before, COVID has been the great revealer of the strengths and weaknesses of a political system. And in China's case, its, it's mobilisation power is very impressive, but at the same time, its lack of transparency um, meant that the virus spread more quickly that, than it should have. Um, so in terms of that global narrative, who's winning the battle? Is it, is it Xi's? Is it others? In terms of looking at China's global position, the global perception of Xi, China's making some missteps. It did some good stuff by um, making PPP early, trying to give it to other countries in Europe, for example, who were struggling and elsewhere in Southeast Asia. All of those are good things. But again, undermining it with what Elizabeth Economy said was wolf diplomacy, demanding gratitude, demanding uh, kind of public a- accolades. That cancels you know, the good action out. So it'll be really interesting to see if China learns from the last couple of months and it changes its tack uh, and it brings a little bit more charm to its public diplomacy. Did she have any views on China's position economically at the end of all of this? She didn't uh, actually have any views on China's economy, but we can probably say that China's economy, yes, will be battered. China's growth was already slowing pre-COVID and the party had adjusted to manage the expectations of Chinese citizens about the economy pre this pandemic. And now, if we can throw ourselves ahead two years, we can only imagine that the Chinese economy will take even more of a hit. There's reports um, out of China that the party is trying to encourage Chinese consumers to get back in the game, but Chinese consumers are not doing that. What was really interesting, Anastasia, was that uh, this whole conference process being stretched out over a number of weeks rather than crammed into two days has given us the opportunity to see different perspectives when we've had time to absorb others. So we we know the American view of China. We know Australia's approach to China. We had a a fascinating discussion between Stan and and Dino Jalal, uh, former Deputy uh, Foreign Minister of Indonesia. And he made it very clear that their view of China was significantly different to that coming from the United States and Australia. And he felt that the United States, particularly through Donald Trump, was far too harsh on China. He felt that Australia was fairly harsh on China. But he also was alert to the fact that um, there was tension between China and Indonesia over Beijing's 
determination to occupy fishing fields and whatever around the Natuna Islands area. And he made it very clear that Indonesia was pushing back on that. We could perhaps hear from Dino now. But you want to focus on trade because you do talk about trade. Three times more trade with China than the United States. So is this how you would characterize this relationship, that it is primarily an economic-driven relationship? Or does that also expand into other areas? Oh, absolutely. I mean, for, for now, the, the, the driver is uh, economic. Uh, I mean, the ambition now is uh, $100 billion uh, in, in, in the near term. And they're going to achieve that uh, because, uh, you know, uh, the Chinese move very fast on, on, on trade. And don't forget on investment, they're about number three now. Uh, two decades ago, they were nowhere to be seen, uh, but but now they are one of the biggest uh, investors uh, in in Indonesia, right? Uh, the and Indonesia and China have a comprehensive and strategic partnership uh, as well, right? Uh, but uh, if you look at the metrics uh, economically and politically. Uh, these are two different things. Uh, the Chinese have some difficulties in terms of public perception in Indonesia. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the Chinese workers, uh, for example, uh, and then uh, politically on the Natuna uh, issue, uh, Natuna uh, waters. Mm-hmm. Um, there's uh, also raised uh, some serious uh, discomfort, uh, both with the Indonesian government and the Indonesian uh, public, right? So, so I see a relationship which is uh, multidimensional, uh, but uh, different uh, degrees of, uh, of uh, intense, uh, intensity, yeah. Anastasia, have you gained impressions from this series about the difference in the views of China from Australia, the United States, and some of our neighbouring countries? Well, yes, I think the grab we just heard was a, a really um, good window into what is a very common Southeast Asian view and, and well-reported one, which is Southeast Asia, no South, Southeast Asian nation wants ratcheting up of tensions between China and Washington. Um, this is not good for the national interests of any of, any of those nations, and they've stated that repeatedly. When Pompeo um, says things uh, like or frames the, the conflict as as a civilizational one, in, in a sense, as a zero-sum uh, battle. This makes Southeast Asian nations very, very uncomfortable. Every nation in the region has its own version of the, a China choice, if you like, to, to paraphrase Hugh White, but for every nation it's a rather an impossible choice. If I could throw back to Elizabeth Economy, she also framed the competition between the US and China as one less of pure geostrategic competition, that is, who gets to win in, in, a, in a global power competition, but as a battle of values between Beijing's more authoritarian values and liberal to democratic values, I think it's important to note that perhaps Southeast Asians don't really share that perspective. Well, look, I think that that reflects the great value of a, an online conference like this because it does give a lot of people access to a very wide range of people that we normally wouldn't hear from. I think Australians can become, even though we're very widely travelled, can become a little insular in their thinking about uh, particular ideas and relationships. I think it is not correct that Australia simply steps in behind the United States as a deputy sheriff and wherever the United States go, we will. 
I think that we are far more wide awake and concerned about the relationships we have with countries like Indonesia. But I think it's extremely important that we hear from people like Dino Jalal on what their concerns are and how their perspective on relationships such as China and Indonesia is slightly different to the views held by most Australians. I couldn't agree more, Britain. I think it's really important in the context where Australia is trying to build up its diplomacy with Southeast Asia that we hear more of these views in our public debate. Absolutely. Well, thanks, Anastasia, for the chat. We're looking forward to the rest of the conference. Fantastic to chat with you too, Brendan. Finally, Leanne Close speaks to Sophia Patel, PhD candidate at King's College London and non-resident Aspie Fellow. They discuss Sophia's research into the gendered aspects of terrorism and how this can inform counter-terrorism policy approaches. Sophia, thank you so much for joining me in this Aspie podcast. Uh, Your studies at the Department of War Studies at King's College in London are focused on gender and terrorism. You also contributed a chapter in Aspie's Counterterrorism Yearbook for 2020 on this topic, and you explored the roles and motivations of Islamic State female affiliates who travelled to the Caliphate. I'm just wondering if you can tell us what you found in that. Sure, thank you. So, hi, Leanne. Um, just very grateful to be here with you today um, on the Aspie podcast. Thank you for the introduction as well. So, yeah, as you say, my research is exploring gender in relation to how we understand terrorism and counterterrorism. <clears throat> and the chapter, although it was pretty high level, the discussion sort of highlighted three main things, I would say. Firstly, it was the factors relating to pathways of females into Islamic State. Second, the gendered roles and responsibilities within the caliphate. And third, the implications on counterterrorism and countering violent extremism work um, of failing to provide or to properly understand the female experience within terrorist groups um, and the broader gender dynamics related to terrorism and terrorist recruitment. So a key finding um, was that there is no single profile of women who traveled to ISIS. Their reasons for going and their journeys over there were very diverse. Uh, Some patterns uh, did emerge from the research, which could be correlated by nationality, perhaps. Um, So, for example, some of the data suggested that a lot of the British women and girls who travelled went independently. But on the other hand, um, over half the Australian cohort who made Hijra went with as part of a family or a group. Um, And those people were all also broadly interconnected through different social and uh, familial networks before they travelled. So they they essentially all knew each other before they were going and um, they facilitated each other's engagement with the group. Um, But essentially it became very clear that policymakers and governments must uh, consider the nuances and the complexities of an individual's experience before they travelled as well as the experience within the caliphate. So before they make the decisions whether about about whether or not they pose a threat, all these factors have to be taken into consideration first. So I'm basically talking about advising against knee-jerk national security responses such as citizenship stripping which both the Australians and the British government have done um, and which I think is unlikely to prove beneficial for the longevity of CT and CVE work, really. We've certainly seen much of exactly those issues in Australia, definitely, including those sort of patterns around familial and um, social networks. So it really seems to be consistent with what's happening around the other people who've travelled to the caliphate, so-called caliphate. In relation to that... We see that obviously there's still a lot of women and children living in the camps around Iraq and Syria today following the the fall. 
um, through the interventions that occurred there. So what are your recommendations for um, for policymakers and government in relation to managing those people? It's a very good question um, and it's one, you know, that is very complicated and very complex and has a lot of um, just, you have to be very sensitive around lots of different arrangements, uh, not just with regards to national security, but also with regard to the populations of the countries to whom these individuals belong um, and communicating that information to these populations in a proper way that, um, so they the mainstream society understands what the threats are and what the risks posed are. And it's very complex and very tentative, I would say. Um, as you rightly say, women constitute the majority of the residents in the camps that are run by Kurdish officers um, in Syria and Iraq. And many of these women strongly sympathize with IS ideologically and remain influential and have some of them have also created an almost proto-state policing structure within the camps um, and they're militant with regards to their fellow ISIS women's dress and behaviours um, in the camps. And their children, uh, they will be growing up in an environment of hard extremism and militancy as well. And, you know, there's been much discussion in the international environment about uh, camps fostering conditions which incubate violent extremism um, rather than solving it. <clears throat> so especially for the foreign women whose governments have not made any clear efforts to repatriate them, this has led to more ingrained sentiments of further abandonment and resentment at times. And so, you know, for policy recommendation purposes, it's it's hard to provide definitive guidance right now. But I would say there's one very clear recommendation, um, which is that of re repatriation. Um, the numbers are small, especially in Australia, and it's manageable. I think there are currently around 20 Australians and 44 children. That was the number that I last had um, in the Al-Hol camp in Syria. The decision to leave them overseas and potentially render the, many of them stateless is very troubling and um, could inadvertently bolster terrorist recruitment campaigns in the future. And these sort of actions of knee-jerk the, the, the actions of citizenship stripping is a knee-jerk response. It privileges the use of blunt and hard security tactics. I have written about that we need to emphasize and promote a legal approach which upholds the rule of law and human rights, which simultaneously considers national security provisions on an individual basis. And I don't think that in the case of the Australian contingent, that should be too challenging given the structures and the infrastructure that the Australian government has to, to deal with situations like this. And it's obviously early times um, mm. with the small number coming out into other countries and obviously the impact of COVID-19 as well. But have you heard of any of the stories about some of the people, women and children who have been repatriated to certain countries, the sorts of strategies and programs in place for them? Yeah, so there are... I mean, again, there's no specific pathway, there's no specific strategy. Different countries have used different measures and some have worked better than others. I would like to, I mean, potentially the case of uh, Shamima Begum is one to <laughs> highlight, which is a what not to do kind of example of um, government almost, well, not just failure, but just a, it's almost like a that's how the knee-jerk response has been um, overturned by the rule of law in our country. So the courts, um, I don't know if you followed the case, but there was a hearing um, in July, I think it was, or June, um, to try to overturn the Home Office's um, decision to revoke Shamima Begum's citizenship, which would effectively render her stateless and not allow her to return to this country. Well, the Home of the, the I think it was the Appeals Court overturned that ruling to allow her to come back to this country to 
repeal the decision herself because it was said that um, she wasn't able to do that from the camp itself. So that in itself was a very encouraging decision on the part of the courts and a very valuable tool that we have um, in place in this country, um, as in other countries, to um, separate the government and the judicial structures, which demonstrates, in fact, that the government's actions are not always legitimate or legal. And we need um, these other external measures to be able to keep them in check and to uphold the rule of law, human rights, in the ways that we have fought for for many decades. So I'm very pleased that that decision has been taken. I'm not sure when she's coming back, but yeah, then that will be a very, clearly a very high profile case. And, you know, that might set the precedent for future cases that are of, that, that require similar um, infrastructure and um, support from both the national security uh, architecture and services, the state, the government, and the, um, the legal in- infrastructure that we have here as well. And you mentioned earlier that. Um, in your, particularly in the research you're doing and, and in the chapter in the CT yearbook, that the roles of women are quite different. So what are the different ways that you feel women approach supporting terrorism and violent extremism compared to males? There are probably two parts to this answer. I'd say broadly, there is a difference between the ways uh, men and women um, are engaged and recruited to support terrorism and violent extremism. So, for example, the methods used in the spaces where recruitment happens for example, there's been some research on the online and offline domains for recruitment, um, especially from, I don't know if you know, Elizabeth Pearson, her work. Um, she highlights the very gendered spaces in which jihadi groups have recruited support from men and women. Um, so, for example, mosques and gyms have been discussed as being hot spots for radicalization, but there's not been much research carried out which actually examines the gender norms of those spaces or how they differ from online gender norms and um, what the impact of those norms are on recruitment. So the ways that online spaces potentially provide a different um, type of recruitment pathway for terrorist organizations than offline spaces and how are these gendered and what that looks like. But on the other hand, when understanding why men and women support terrorist groups, such as ISIS or even far right, research has shown that men and women actually join in support for quite similar reasons. So I've written about another, lots of other people have also discussed this as well, that the push and pull factors overlap considerably between men and women. So despite the media creating a discourse of women traveling for romance and becoming quote unquote jihadi brides, it was very common in fact to also see men traveling for reasons such as romance and marriage. Um, Because the whole notion of Islamic marriage was wrapped up in a complex narrative of a, a pure, divinely ordained sort of religious, a religious sort of deliverance um, into fulfilling your requirements as a good Muslim. So, yeah, while there are, I think, similarities and differences between men and women's recruitment, well, no, what I was trying to say is, yeah, there, there are similarities and differences between men and women's recruitment um, and their support, support for the group. And all of that has to sort of be taken into consideration um, when understanding how the dynamics between men and women in relation to terrorism and therefore counterterrorism. So flowing on from that, your work um, is also identifying that all forms of security and insecurity are also gendered. And so men and women experience insecurity in different ways. So is that something similar or can you expand on that a little bit more? Sure. Um, so that's actually probably uh, where the sort of the academic stuff comes in here. Um, and in fact, it's been very I hadn't actually been a, a gender scholar um, until I started my PhD. I'd always been interested in gendered issues and, um, you know, how men and women understand and um, experience t- 
terrorism and violent extremism differently. And I'd always sort of, you know, yeah, just been interested in it and sort of tried to understand like how policy dealt with these issues as well. But this is a very sort of put a common mistake, I think, that's made in policymaking, which academia has tried to um, not correct, because that sounds, you know, a bit, uh, I don't know what the word is. But yeah, basically, gender is almost always equated to women. um, And that's a misconception. And that shouldn't, that needs to be sort of unpicked. I think we need to go back in order to explain and sort of answer the question without my ramble before that. I think we need to go back to understand gender as a socially constructed phenomenon. So basically, that's the idea that understands all social interactions to be a product of hierarchical relationships, which are attached to concepts of masculinity or femininity. So in other words, men and women learn and perform behaviors and rules differently, and they're attached to preconceived notions of what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman. So even in a more simpler way, if the world is different, if you're a man and if you're a woman, and no social experience can therefore be understood as being gender neutral, In addition to that, we have to also acknowledge the ways in which gender intersects with other socially constructed phenomena like race or class or ethnicity. Um, And all of these phenomena are linked and related and determine the opportunities or um, disadvantages in any given context or situation. So if we relate this back to the ideas of security and insecurity, which is the question that you initially asked, we basically we cannot assume that security and insecurity is gender neutral. Um, And therefore, policies and practices put into place to create national security sometimes end up creating insecurity. And that is especially pertinent at an individual level. So just to give you a couple of examples, I think that might be helpful. So stop and search policies, um, which are implemented by law enforcement, as you know, tend to be driven by profiles which are both gendered and raced. So males of a certain age who look a certain way are often, not always, but often the targets of national sec- this particular national security policy. So the effects of this policy end up creating a heightened sense of insecurity among a certain segment of the population, be that male, highly masculine, um, and uh, as, yeah, heavy, heavily male-oriented. But on the other hand, if we look at policies of home searches, for example, and um, this has particularly come up in my uh, research that I've been doing for the PhD in the context of the Troubles um, during the 80s, 1980s and 1990s uh, in the UK. Um, and also, I would say now in the context of Islamist terrorism as well, it's probably um, quite effective, um, both in Australia and the UK. So the effect of law enforcement um, practitioners accessing intimate parts of a home has been reported to have hugely negatively impacted the women of the family in a much more damaging way than the male members of the family. Fionnuala Nialain, who is the current special rapporteur at the UN for Human Rights, has actually done lots and lots of research on this topic, which is really valuable and is probably much better explaining this than I've uh, than I am, but um, these, this is the kind of sort of that's what I mean when I say that security and insecurity are gendered, um, and we have to take that into consideration when developing the policies and then implementing them and understanding how they impact different segments of the population in different ways. Sophia, thank you so much for your insights today. It's really clear that there's a lot more that we need to learn from a policy perspective, um, the way law enforcement intelligence interact in these areas. Uh, and and what we need to do to be able to uh, promote new ideas and to also base it in evidence and, and the research that you're doing. So it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you and really thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you very much. It's been a privilege and it's been very lovely to speak to Aspie again after, after such a long time. So thank you for having me. 
That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. Don't forget to join us for the final week of Strategic Vision 2020, which continues next week with discussions on pandemics, climate and Southeast Asia. To register for the upcoming sessions or watch previous sessions on demand, visit the ASPE website. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We look forward to seeing you next time.